Good morning. Welcome to church. We are glad that you're here today. Uh, if you are a guest with us, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Hope, and I uh, just want to welcome you and pray that this service is a blessing to you. We are in a sermon series this summer called Then Sings My Soul, and I'm very excited about this series. We, we took a look at hymns of faith, hymns that really have stood the test of time, and thinking about their biblical correlations. A lot of hymns come straight from Scripture. They quote Scripture and preaching through that and thinking through that this summer. Even if you are brand new to Christianity, you didn't grow up in the church, and you have no idea about these old hymns, I, I know that this will be a blessing to you because some of these songs have been around for hundreds of years and uh, they are worth uh, us knowing and, and living out in our lives. Uh, so today I'm going to be looking at this hymn called Holy, Holy, Holy. That's a whole lot of holies, right? Holy, 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 and thinking about what that means in, in our lives. Got a question for you. Is, is there anything in our culture today that is holy anymore? Is there anything in our culture today that is holy anymore? Uh, recently I had an experience. I did a wedding uh, at a wedding venue uh, just outside of town. Beautiful place. They did a great job. Beautiful wedding venue. Young couple, extremely faithful. Extremely faithful. Their faith was really important to them. And one of the things that they wanted at their wedding was a cross. And the wedding venue didn't have a cross, so they called and asked, hey, can we, you know, borrow a cross from the church? Would that be okay? And I said, no. Just kidding. Of course, I said, yes. Uh, you can borrow a, a, a cross, and that is important. So we had the, the rehearsal and the wedding, and, and during the rehearsal, you know, with the cross there, I was talking to the people that managed the place, beautiful facility, uh, did a great job, and say, you know, hey, you know, Perhaps maybe you should build a cross. You could have a cross here in case couples uh, would want uh, that cross. Really easy to, you know, do. They go like this and like this. Um, and, uh, and, they, and they said no. Uh, they said no because they said 10% uh, or less of the weddings at this venue uh, are, are by a pastor or, or faithful or they would request any type of influence in that way. 10% or less. And so there just wasn't a demand that they saw that warranted having that at that place. And it, and it started me to ask this question, is, is there anything holy anymore? Right? That marriage is, is not based on, on God's promises in Jesus Christ, uh, but it's simply just kind of what we want to do when we want to do it. This song, Holy, 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 was written by a pastor named, I want to get it right, Reginald Heber. Reginald Heber lived at the beginning of the 1800s, and he was an Anglican priest. He wanted to write a, a song or a hymn that went with all of the different church calendar Sundays, and he wrote this one for a Sunday called Trinity Sunday, which was actually last week, yeah, if, you, if you're church nerd like that and, and want to look at that. If you're wondering what is an Anglican, uh, think Episcopalian priests. So the Anglican church is the Church of England, uh, and we know them as Episcopalians in, in this country, uh, and they call their religious leaders priests, priests that can get married. There's the technical definition for all of this. So he wrote this beautiful hymn, and, and really it wasn't put to music till after his death. Shortly after his death, uh, a guy named John Bacchus Dykes wrote a hymn called Nicaea, uh, which is based on uh, the, the Nicene Creed uh, and the gathering of that. And, and this has just become 
a really popular hymn throughout time. In fact, the claim to fame of Holy, Holy, Holy is that of all the hymn books, of all the different denominations and Christians, Holy, Holy, Holy is in the most hymn books. So it seems to be a hymn that, that really has universal application in terms of, of, of Christians. But it begs us to ask the question, holy, 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 what does that mean? So, so three questions I want to answer for you today. The first is, what does it mean to be holy? What does holiness mean? Second question, what makes something holy? What makes something holy? And the third question, what in the world does that have to do with you and I? What does it have to do with us? So the first question, what is holy? What does holy mean? What does it mean? Most often, I think, when we think of the word holy in our contemporary culture, we use a secondary definition. Now, what I mean by that is when we think of someone, something as holy, we think as morally righteous. We say, you know, that, that person is holy, or, or, you know, that situation was a, you know, holy situation. Being pure, being morally righteous, uh, that is certainly an application of the word holy, but it is not the primary biblical definition of what holy means. If something is holy, biblically, it means two things. That it's set apart and it's sacred. That it's set apart and it's sacred. In other words, it's not for everyday use. It's for special occasions. It's for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is a divine purpose. It has something to do with the sacred. It has something to do with God. Uh, the set-apart part, think of it like this. Did anybody grow up in that household uh, where your mom had that beautiful set of dishes in a cabinet that nobody ever touched and you never saw used once? Even for special occasions, right? You said, well, we'll use that. But, you know, it just never was used, right? And they're going to pass it down from generations. Right? That's the set-apart. It's not, it's not an ordinary, everyday dish that you use. It's something that is only used on, on special occasions. And the sacred part has to do with our relationship with God. It's used for divine purposes. When you go into the Old Testament, you look at some of the worship traditions of ancient Israel, you see lots of things uh, that they had in the tabernacle and then the temple that were set apart. They were only for holy purposes. They were sacred. They were set apart and they were sacred. So that's what, what holy means. And so when we say things like, you know, holy ground or, or holy people or, or holy things or holy moly. I don't know what holy moly means actually. But when we say things like that, we mean something that's special. It's set apart and it is sacred. Now the second question is, if that's what it means to be holy, what makes something holy? What makes something holy? Well, the simple answer is God does. Because of all the things in the entire universe, in all of creation that is truly set apart, that is truly other, God alone is holy. God alone is all-powerful. God alone is above all things. God alone is righteous, and God alone is holy. God alone is holy. And God alone is the one who can make things holy. How does God do this? Well, God does this by, by anointing things, by 
selecting for a purpose things, by, by touching things with his presence and setting them apart for a specific purpose. Let me give you an example from, from our text today. So our first lesson was read from Isaiah. It's the beginning of the, the book of Isaiah. It's a, it's a book of prophecy in the Old Testament. It's a large book, and we're in the beginning. And, and Isaiah has a vision, and he sees the throne room of God. And it's a wild vision. The throne room of God, God's robe is so big is that the tail of that robe fills the entire floor. In this throne room, there's smoke, and there's these things called seraphim. Have you ever heard of seraphim before? They're like these flying six-winged angels. And two of the wings cover their face, two of the wings cover their feet, and two of the wings they fly with, which seems pretty inefficient to me. But that's how they do it. And they're flying around, and they're saying, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then their voice is so powerful. When the seraphim speak, it shakes the very foundations of the throne room of God. That's what Isaiah said. I just think someday we're going to go there and see that by faith. It shakes the throne room of God. And what's Isaiah's reaction? So Isaiah sees, gets a vision of the holy, mighty king of creation. What's his response? It's not, he didn't fall down on his knees in worship. He he didn't join the seraphim and say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, praise God. What's his response? He says, woe is me. Woe is me. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a, a, a people of unclean lips. In other words, when, when Isaiah encounters the divine, when he encounters the holy, he becomes tremendously aware of how common he is, of how broken he is, of how unholy he is. What happens when, when we encounter the holy? There, there was a guy named Dr. Otto did this research this was a study. Went around the world to different cultures, tribes, religions, and, and examined holy objects, holy things, holy practices to see if there were any similarities with this. And, and, he, and he wrote this uh, little article about it. He called the Mysterium Tremendum. Sounds like I'm, you know, uh, at Hogwarts or something when I say that. But Mysterium Tremendum. And, and what does he say? He says when we encounter holiness, we, we have a sense of the mysterious and the tremendous. And that's how it is, right? When we we encounter the living God, the God that is Lord of all creation, the God that made it all, there's tremendous mystery there. When we sing this hymn today, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. We baptize in the the name of that God that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? That's the, the truth of Scripture and our faith that we confess and we believe, yet it's mystery. Like how that all works completely? No one can really explain that. No one can fully comprehend how that Trinity stuff works, but it's one God in three persons. Or we think just about God's creation. I heard a statistic the other day that said that for every person that has ever lived on the face of the planet, they now think there's three galaxies out there them. And a galaxy is a collection of hundreds of millions and billions of stars. 
So for every person who has ever lived, whoever has walked the planet, there, there's three galaxies out there. Right? How do we even get our mind around a God that is that big? That is that incredible. Right? It's, it's mystery. And then a God that's tremendous, a God that's all-powerful, a God that is worthy alone of our praise. And Dr. Otto said that what happens when, when people encounter the holy is kind of what happened to Isaiah. It's this recognition of how unholy we are. And one of the universal responses is ambivalence to a holy God. You keep God at arm's length because you don't know what to do with it. You can't, you can't comprehend that. So what does God do for Isaiah? We didn't read this part, but if you read on to the text, this is what it says. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And so when Isaiah encounters the holiness of God, which he just can't comprehend at all, besides to recognize his own unworthiness and unholiness, what does God do for him? He he sends this seraphim to touch his lips with a, a coal from the altar and anoint him. And when he's touched by this fire from God, his sins are forgiven. His guilt is taken away. And he now has a godly purpose in this world. Here I am, send me. He becomes the mouthpiece for God. In other words, there was nothing intrinsic, there was nothing in Isaiah, in himself, that made him special or unique or holy. But what made Isaiah holy was the touch of God. So now, what in the world does that have to do with us? What in the world does it have to do with us? In order to understand that, we must look at the Holy One of God. In our gospel text today, we see Jesus, and he casts out an impure spirit or a, a demon. And the demon... The demon who serves evil, the devil, recognizes that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Well, that Holy One of God, that holiness of God, that's what we believe, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, climbs up onto a cross. And he dies on that cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And when you read through the Gospels, you see that something unique happens when Jesus dies on that cross. The Jewish people, they believe that God lives in a place called the Holy of Holies. It's in the Temple of David, and at the center of that temple is a room. And this room is so unique and so special, only a handful of priests who come from the tribe of Levi, after they've been properly consecrated and cleansed and all that stuff, were ever even allowed access into this guarded-off room where they believed that the Holy Spirit of God dwelt. It was called the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Why from top to bottom? The details matter here because if a curtain is going to naturally part, it will part from the bottom up, the physics of it. But it tears from top to bottom. God's hand tears open the holy of holy. So God doesn't dwell in the back room of some building anymore. But scripture says that the Holy Spirit now dwells in the human heart. This is why it's important. Because the Holy One, our Holy God, has anointed you. Our holy God has anointed you. And by Jesus' death and his resurrection, you, by faith, are now holy. Did you hear that? I don't know if you're getting how, how special and unique and important this is. That the, the Lord of all creation, the, the King of kings, the Lord God Almighty, holy, 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 died for you on a cross to anoint you to live in your heart. And by his righteousness alone, you are made holy. And that means that your life now is a holy life and it is set apart and it is sacred. I don't know where this lie came from, probably from the beginning, but we certainly have capitalized about it in our culture. This belief that your life is all about you and your interests and what you want to do and your plans and your goals and your successes and your failures and all those things, really it's not about any of that. The older I get, the longer I live, the realize that it's really not about me and it's not about you. It's about God and his glory. And he has set your life apart for his purposes in this world. And here at Hope, we understand that those purposes are to fulfill the great commandment, love one another, right? And the great commission to to share Jesus with all the world. So that we call that to encourage all people to know the love of God. Of Christ. So your life doesn't belong to you. It's been set apart for a sacred purpose to make Jesus known in this world. The holy God dwells in you, and by the Holy Spirit, you are holy. So be holy. Now, this means. Because this calling for us to be holy, and again, remember, this isn't a call to moral self-righteousness. This is a call to be set apart for a purpose, an identity and a purpose for God. This is going to make you different than this world. And this is rapidly changing. If you're here today and you're over 40 years old, you grew up in a time and in a culture, sure there was social change, there was social trauma, but, but for the majority of us who are over 40 in this world, we, we, we lived in a culture and a world where the majority was Christian. And the values that we had as Christians about what was right and wrong, what's acceptable and not acceptable, and all those things seemed to be socially by the majority pretty clear. I mean, there were arguments about things, right? But, but those, those were, were clear. We, we, we understood this thing called inherited faith, that if grandma and grandpa were Christians, mom and dad were Christians, and so we were, were Christians. 
But if you're under 40, here's the thing. Inherited faith is dying in our culture. I was listening to a podcast by, by Timothy Keller, uh, who, who was a great man of faith, influential, wrote a lot, just passed away. And he said, inherited faith is dying, meaning that the assumption that my kids will be Christians because I was a Christian is just no more. I was recently at a, a conference uh, a month ago, and one of the speakers there quoted a statistic that said, that among young adults today, so those under 40, 35 and under is what he said, the church, Christians, have an 11% approval rate in our culture today. 11%. The same as Congress. So if you're here today and say, why aren't those young people in church? Why, why aren't my kids in, in, in church anymore? My, my grandkids, right? Well, it's because somehow uh, they've got a misconception about the church. The reasons are endless. I could preach for hours about the polarization of our society and the hypocrisy that's existed and within the church and, and the sin that has led people away. But, but we have an absolute cultural split in terms of the value systems that are guiding us generation that's happening in our lifetime. And so the question is, what do we do? What's our response? Well, well some pastors, some, some Christian leaders, thought leaders say that, you know, the, the goal then is to, well, let's interpret scripture to fit these new set of values. And what you do is you go through scripture and you cherry pick the verses that you want to listen to and you think are good verses, and then you just ignore the ones that are harder to hear. But, but you see, that's not a consistent way to interpret what we believe. I call that cultural accommodation. So what do we do? I believe Jesus tells us that. The New Testament tells us that. First Peter 1 says, be holy, because God is holy. So you've been set apart. You're, you're sacred. That, that means you're not meant to be like this world. That means that the decisions you make and the values that you have sometimes are going to be really different than what our culture says we should think and we believe. And at times, those in our world may think that that's judging them. They may think that that's mean or hurtful. But the way of Jesus is not often understood, but it is the way of truth and love. In other words, when our culture goes left, we go Jesus. When our culture goes right, what do we do? We go Jesus. Because Jesus has anointed us and made us holy. So be holy as God is holy. You've been set apart not to, to conform to the patterns of this world, Romans 12, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the power of the Holy Spirit. Be holy as God is holy. We, we don't live this life in order to please the crowd. We live this life in order to win the crowd for Jesus because we're holy as he is holy. It's kind of like this. When I was growing up, I played football. I was a wide receiver, really small and fast. Just kidding. 
I was on the line. I was typecast. And, and you know, on the, your football jersey, you have your football number, and then you have a name on the back, right? I have my last name, Ninus. My dad would always say to me, I'm sure lots of dads and moms have said this to their kids, son, don't ever forget the name on the back of your jersey. When you go out, uh, when, uh, when you're playing on the field or when you're out in public or when you're behaving, the decisions you make, they reflect on me. And they reflect on our family. Just because everybody else is jumping off a bridge, right? That old thing you would say doesn't mean you have to because of the name on the back of your jersey. There's a name, not on the back of your jersey, but it was made in the sign of the cross during your baptism on your forehead. And that name is Child of God. Christian, in fact, Christian, the word Christian literally means anointed one. Anointed with the Holy Spirit could be interpreted as holy one. That's who you are And that is our purpose and calling in this world. There's lots of paths that we could take, things that we could pursue in this world. But ultimately, they may be fulfilling in earthly ways, but they're empty wells until we find our identity and our purpose in Jesus Christ. And so, people of hope, be holy as God is holy. Amen. Father, thank you today for your grace, love, and mercy in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, come, dwell in us, in our hearts. Teach us to love as you have loved. Teach us to to walk in truth as you walked in truth. Lord, may we be holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen.